For June 12th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 467. The thing you can't reboot is Tom Cruise. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out with each other, with you, talking about the things that we like to talk about, the movies, TV, music, and more uh, that really gets our brains going. This week, The Mummy. Not... Emotep. Emotep. <laughs> if there's no Brendan Fraser, there's no Pete Fenzel, and that's the bottom line. <laughs> wow. Bold declaration there. Uh, does that hold for just mummy movies or other sorts of movies as well? Unfortunately, it now holds for all movies. <laughs> so, Brendan, get on it. Fast to the Furious 9. You have two years. Please. <laughs> God, I thought that, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, so uh, it's it's a film purportedly so bad that it was worth that, like, Borat-esque not joke uh, there. It's, uh, it's fallen to Wonder Woman at the box office, which is a little embarrassing for its first week and, and a thing that is supposed to, uh, a thing that is, you know, supposed to, like, inaugurate a new cinematic universe, the dark universe from Universe which is a play on on the name of the studio um but let's not uh let's not fall victim to the same sort of tired horse race journalism that uh you know that just dominates the the media these days the mummy is not necessarily bad because it less made less money than wonder woman the mummy can be bad in its own right uh, as well. And so, uh, to talk about why we are not covering The Mummy, we have the panel of overthinkers tonight, including Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matthew. Emo, and by the way, this was, this was... Believe it or not, The Mummy was Tom Cruise's biggest global international box office opening ever. That's something, so, that, I wanted, that's something that I wanted to bring up. Like, it killed, <laughs> it killed globally. I think, like, something like four to one, the number of yeah. dollars it made worldwide versus the number of dollars, dollars that it made in, uh, in the United States. So, I mean, maybe they know their market, actually. And it's not uh, a bunch of... Uh, uh, not a bunch of cynical coastal elites, you know, sitting in their sitting in their towers. Speaking of cynical coastal elites sitting in a tower uh, from New York, it's Mr. Mark Lee. <laughs> Both of those statements are true. I am a cynical coastal elite, and in a way, I am sitting in a tower. In a way, and I am your uh, and I am your host, Matt Rather, here uh, here in the the you know beachy dream capital of uh, of the movie industry, California, where things like The Mummy are dreamt up and launched on an unsuspecting world, and then they're killed and buried for millennia, and then reanimated and launched again <laughs> on an unsuspecting world. Um, so, yeah, this it, it just didn't look good, and apparently it is not... Uh, apparently it is, it is not good, but it's a, uh, it's a, the, you know, I don't know. It's the, supposed to be the launch of the kind of universal monster movie series again, like this sort of dark, 
dark universe, which I guess includes, I don't know, have, have, has anyone Googled this? The, the mummy? Sure. I, I, yeah, I got a list monster. here. I'll, I'll run, yeah, I got a list. I'll run the changes on it. Money, mummy, Bride of Frankenstein, Black Lagoon, Invisible Man, Van Helsing, Wolfman, Ooh. Frankenstein, Dracula, and wait for it. The Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame, neither of which I suppose will be musicals nor animated. So color me disappointed. <laughs> so basically every bit of like 19th century gothic horror from with like uh, uh, with like a public domain character. Well, not yeah, like I'm- Dorian Gray. <laughs> it's not like the league of extraordinary gentlemen like point for point with uh but uh but yeah it's all of the ones that they already made into movies before right right and to that point they can claim a copyright on even though sort of the 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 base material of it is public domain at least in the case of frankenstein um uh, the specific rendition of frankenstein that is most popular uh, that is uh, from a Universal Pictures movie that is copyright. And I'm specifically referring to the uh, bolts on the neck, uh, uh, Frankenstein. Now, yeah. um, we'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, there are plenty of examples where people have gotten around uh, said copyright and reverted back to you know, so the public domain claim on the Frankenstein character by putting the bolts, oh, I don't know, on his forehead, uh, <laughs> uh, in other parts of his body, let's put it that way. But you still have kind of like the big... The big forehead with the, with the stitches, and you know, it's unmistakably looks like Frankenstein, but uh, the bolt placement is key for copyright. So, so, Mark, I hate to well actually you. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, I had Franken- this, yeah, this coming. Frankenstein, uh, okay. Frankenstein's, Frankenstein's monster. Doctor. What you're actually talking monster. about? What you're actually talking about is Frankenstein's <laughs> lawyer. All right, it's called Frankenstein's <laughs> lawyer. Um, That's yeah. what the movies are about. <laughs> not the doctor or even that corpse thing that walks around that was in the monsters <laughs> yeah the the i mean the, the that's the green skinned bolts in the neck like flat top frankenstein right yeah uh, yeah the one who charges you 150 an hour just for consultation <laughs> <laughs> 150 an hour what kind of oh, cut yeah. rate what kind of cut rate lawyer are you going 300, to 400 500 i don't know all i know is he hates fire he loves tall buildings and he <laughs> and he thinks he's necessary for absolutely everything that i have to do so there you go um, <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's interesting they all have such different different origins and the kind of the it's funny that frankenstein would be the one that that we focus on because frankenstein like is maybe the least sensationalistic right in terms of its uh uh in terms of its origin right because the the mary shelley uh, novella is you know a work of of serious and kind of intellectually ambitious literary fiction sort of speculative you know proto sci-fi right the the uh it doesn't have a lot of the the things that we expect it's i think he like he wakes up because of chemicals not because of a bolt of lightning in the novel it's been a while since i've since i've uh since i've read the story but like it's that it's the most recognizable one and the most seem seemingly kind of the most um uh, the one with the most mass appeal or mass recognition is seems ironic to me because it is the highest brow of the you know of those. Or I guess I guess uh, Victor Hugo might be you know might be comparably comparably highbrow. Um, have you yeah. have you never read Thomas Pynchon's Creature from the Black Lagoon? <laughs> it's a tour de force. <laughs> Two hundred and fifty 
characters. Uh, it's all nonlinear narrative. <laughs> and the whole I don't even know if the lagoon is like the soul or whether it's kind of the collective subconscious or whether it's just a metaphor for the, uh, the uh, 1980s U.S. intervention in Granada. It's very complex. <laughs> very textured. Ladies, you can tell you can tell if that guy you're dating is a pretentious douchebag, if he has an, uh, you know, an uncracked copy of Thomas Pynchon's Creature from the Black Lagoon next to his uncracked copy of Infinite Jest on the bookshelf. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, as a person who tried to read the first 50 pages of Gravity's Rainbow no fewer than half a dozen times, uh, I can definitively say that I have not read Thomas Pynchon's Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I will not read Thomas Pynchon's Creature from, uh, from the Black Lagoon. It's, it's funny because what it's actually called is Alan Moore's Swamp Thing is like, that's Thomas Pynchon's Creature from the Black Lagoon. But, uh, at any rate, it's important to have boundaries. That's there's all a, I'm saying. There's a great lawyer joke in Gravity's Rainbow, actually. Oh, yeah. We're, we're going to make lawyer jokes. Yeah. He has a, uh, he has a, a law firm that comes up in the course of the, uh, what can I suppose loosely be described as a narrative called, uh, uh, like Saltieri or Salatieri Poor. Nash, De Brutus, and Short. <laughs> so, you know that's some uh, that's some highbrow Thomas Pynchon Thomas Pynchon humor. I don't know the man. The man loves puns. I've read many of the the shorter works, and and he he just seems to like puns. Um, I don't know anything else, Pete. What do you think of the Dark Universe? Is it dark and universal? It's certainly universal. <laughs> um, it's just a shame that Universal couldn't hold on to the Incredible Hulk. I mean, Ang Lee's Hulk would have fit right in, right? Uh, but they couldn't make it. They couldn't make it work. Uh, I think that it's interesting and it's exciting. I'm excited about Godzilla and King Kong. By all accounts, those movies have been good. Uh, I just watched Young Frankenstein for the first time, and that movie's excellent. Uh, have you guys seen Young Frankenstein? <laughs> no, I haven't. Not actually. in a while. Yeah, I don't think it's universal. It might be universal. It uses the actual uh, lab equipment from the 1931 Frankenstein movie. It's a Gene Wilder, Mel Brooks joint, and it is just a delight. Uh, just the tone is just dead on, and it's it's a. I think Mel Brooks said it was his finest movie, but not his funniest. Um, but uh, I, I, if you haven't checked out Young Frankenstein, it's on Netflix. It's a it's a parody, but it also indulges in the genre. Uh, it's got a lot to say, and it is distributed, in fact, by 20th Century Fox. Uh, so there's a great example of Frankenstein who does not have the neck bolts and is played by the grandpa from Everybody Loves Raymond. Uh, so I guess that's not in the public domain either. Um, but yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It's super great. Is it? So. Um, I guess. Uh, oh, there's a. Uh, what's the story of the Bride of Frankenstein? Right? Like, is it is is it the Bride of Doctor Frankenstein or is it really the Bride of Frankenstein's monster? Um, is it their, uh, you know, I, 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 I got to leap down this Wikipedia rat hole and uh, I, I, th- I think it's, I think it's supposed to be his, the monster's bride, right? That he like abducts a woman. Uh, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe there's another angle to it, but I, I don't, I don't really know much. Honestly, most of my understanding of the universal dark universe comes from the monsters, which I loved when I was a child. <laughs> and which is interesting because that's sort of kind of what we're talking about, right? Like a world in which all these iconic figures all live together, probably in a house. Um, they like have an <laughs> Avengers mansion. Oh, actually, you know what? Uh, the monsters, uh, filmed at universal studios. 
So uh, and and distributed by NBC Universal Television and produced by uh, Universal Television. So that is so the monsters are actually part of the dark universe also, uh, and that would be amazing if they were if you if like the the Frankenstein monster and the monsters were to like go head to head. Uh, in perhaps a drag race of some kind, or like a pie eating contest. Well, I, mean, I, I guess the, the monsters would be like the Guardians of the Galaxy type entry into their cinematic universe, right? More lighthearted, uh, jokier. Uh, yeah, you know, watchable. Serious cousins. Yeah, exactly. No, are you? Are you okay? Are you, are, let's talk about cinematic universes for a second, right. Pete. Are you uh, throwing shade there at the Marvel Cinematic Universe by suggesting that some other entrances into the Marvel Cinematic Universe are not watchable? Um, I, I guess I wasn't really doing that because there aren't really any entrants into the Marvel Cinematic Universe that are overly serious, as far as I can remember. They're all pretty light. Even Iron Man, where he goes to Afghanistan, is like pretty light. There's a lot of joking around, right? Like, that, even the that's, ones that, that's fair to say, yeah. Yeah, but I guess what I would say is that the I, and the idea, which at this point should be like thoroughly debunked, which is that movies that are largely jokes – uh, can't really stand toe to toe with movies that uh, take themselves seriously, even with regards to um, kind of lowbrow subject matter. Like at this point, hopefully it has been thoroughly thrashed, right? Like, the, oh no, this is too silly, right? Like I want to watch the 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 Christopher Nolan Batman and not the uh, the Marvel, you know, the, the new Spider Man movie. Hopefully we we're not at the point where those two ideas are really at war anymore. If anyway, think it's gone the other way and people have kind of rejected overly serious franchise movies right as sort of not being worth your popcorn time right and not being joyful and that seems to be the trend it makes me wonder whether they should have done the monsters first like whether they just should have like like i mean i guess doing godzilla first is the right way to go because godzilla has a fair amount of camp and so did skull island um but i guess the main thing is that here, here's the main thing the main thing is that if you are going back and you are re-performing some sort of iconic costume there is likely an element of camp in there somewhere that you can take advantage of or that will take advantage of you right because it's a costume it's it's a it is a realness right uh like it is it is uh eddie munster realness is happening grandpa munster realness is happening uh that there's a there's a recognition that your the whoever is going to be the new dracula is to an extent going to be wearing the costume of the old dracula and it's going to take a lot in the performance to kind of take over the center of gravity of dracula as a character and so instead it's going to look like somebody who's dressed up as dracula and and when you doing that especially in these kinds of movies where we're probably not going to be like uh really boldly reinventing who these characters are or what they do like these are probably about kind of regrounding the traditional stories in ways that the audiences are likely to, to recognize right and like uh it's, it's also actually i shouldn't even really say that because it's also the whole terminator genesis conceit where it's really showing these movies to people overseas who never got to saw them on the big screen see them on the big screen because they didn't have movie theaters in like the 60s right um and that's like the big the big purpose of a lot of this but but the just the idea being that like if you dress up as Dracula, you're not playing Dracula. You're playing everybody else who's ever played Dracula. And and I think the mummy, part of why I'm the mummy doesn't appeal to me at all is that it does not appear that the mummy is being presented as somebody who is playing the mummy. Right? It's being presented as somebody who's playing a monster that's being called the mummy. Uh, but I, I don't get the sense looking at it like there's no bandages. There's like something with like the locusts and the clouds and stuff. But it needs a little bit more Imhotep for me to really feel like it's vibing. Um, but all, even that, you're already two generations removed away from the core story. Um, 
I'm just saying that that in that whole performativity is a notion of camp that should connect with other ideas of performativity, like identity and status and gender and all these other things that make it funny. And I think that happens a lot in successful superhero movies where you recognize that it that there's a costuming that's taking place and and that there's a play acting that's taking place and uh, and that the knowledge of it is able to enrich the experience of it rather than uh, will being willfully blind to the fact that there's ever been a Superman before. Right. Um, I like Superman Returns for this reason, because it sort of felt like they were performing. I think I described it as the L.A. County Community Theater production of Superman the movie. Right. Like it mm-hmm. feels like they're performing <laughs> Superman. Uh, granted, it didn't really surpass enough or have enough to say or enough to do to really capture the imagination of everybody. But I don't know. Uh, that's sort of why I like it. If you really are delving into a franchise, if it's more than just I need to tell this story because there's something about this story that I find really interesting and it's necessary for me to retell the story, instead of it's like, well, I have to retell the story because audiences are going to love it. And and I and it's, it's just like a decision I got to make. If I got to make a story, I want to make a story that people are going to love. Here's what I can do. I can do it over again. It's an old standby. It's an old standard. I think there's something fun and funny about that, and at least something that kind of questions who we are and questions uh, the nature of the individual versus the sort of idea of a person that persists over time. Yeah, I mean, and for that, that, a certain amount of camp is called for, and thus why I didn't see The Mummy. Uh, although people who have not seen Mummy movies before, it seems like, would be more likely to see The Mummy because they're not disappointed by the fact that it doesn't seem to refer to their previous understanding of what the character is supposed to be. Thus, the record overseas opening and bad u.s opening where it's like that's the mummy Psh, you know whatever it's no brilliant great for that there's no even abbott and costello like come on i suppose it would be naive to think that there ever was kind of a, kind of an original non-campy mummy right like uh, the the whole thing the the mummy was uh or no uh, i guess the i'm thinking frankenstein um it was boris karloff right and he was sort of known as the man of a thousand faces he was associated with universal um and like it was part of the attraction like part of what was being sold in those things is like look at the costume look at the makeup uh that we're going to put on boris karloff uh these times and then his sort of very operatic kind of body posture type uh uh you know type acting you know where he kind of strikes a series of of threatening poses and and um and and things like this uh were they i forget whether they were talkies or not right like but but we're talking about the early 30s i think for for a lot of these movies and it but it strikes me that like a lot of in the origins of like in the origins of uh a lot of these monsters you can't really take the monster seriously unless there is like an authentic bad other for um for the monster to represent, right? Like in the in the way that that Frankenstein, uh, not uh, not Frankenstein, Dracula represents the sort of the threat to the sexual purity of our you know upright, chaste British girls from the decrepit Transylvanian aristocracy from from continental Europe, right? Like it's it is perhaps a less rarefied uh, version of a, of the sort of thing that a lot of uh, Henry James stories are about, and that. Um, 
the, you know, and you can kind of go go down and down. Uh, Frankenstein is maybe a little more complicated because it's it's a, a sci-fi thing, so it's about sort of the the dangers of playing God, but it's also about um, it's a little bit about what constitutes a person. Uh, and for someone who was deeply enmeshed in the the uh, feminism of her day, um, that's a an extraordinarily poignant question, right? Like, so there 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 has to be there has to be something there has to be in order not to be campy right like there has to be something that these things are pegged to there has to be a a sort of real social uh real (laughs) a real perceived social ill uh for these things for these things to be referenced to and like in the description that you're coming up with pete that in what you're saying it it seems like you know what we are we we go to the mummy for the mummying right like we go to the kong for the kong-ing and to the hulk for the hulk-ing well he does and he doesn't uh, fit into this, but but um, we you know we go to see something uh, acted out. You know we go to see a certain kind of performance that we've seen before. Like honestly, in the way that we go to see recreations of Balanchine's ballets uh, or or something like that. Though I suppose that is more uh, rather more faithful than I imagine the Universal Dark Universe reboots are are going to be and it if you just have a sort of rush of sensation right like if that's what if that's what you're selling um you know i i i'm not sure even if you even if you kind of let go of the idea that there was ever a one pure original non-campy uh frankenstein original non-campy mummy original non-campy dracula even if you you know even if you sort of uh, admit that it was ever thus and probably has has ever been thus you got to sort of wonder um i don't know the threat has to come from from somewhere uh beyond just like cgi destruction and it's uh, it's difficult to see where that would come from in in just straight up monster movie reboot maybe the monsters are hackers how about that what if the monsters you know are <laughs> what, what like- if the monster what if the monsters are ottomans so <laughs> like, where i'm going with this is that uh, since we're talking about uh, this dark universe um, and Dracula, and you're going to see, you know, the mummy mummying and Dracula, Dracula ing. Um, everybody basically forgot that in 2014, three years ago, there was a Dracula movie, Dracula Untold, <laughs> starring uh, everyone's favorite Luke Evans. Um, and it was nobody that told was supposed- me about it, Mark. Nobody told yeah, me. You didn't get the memo, Pete. Uh, this is <laughs> supposed to be the start of the quote unquote dark universe, but uh, basically, Universal's like, ah, eh, forget it, and they did the mummy instead. So I, I, I haven't seen this, but uh, based on uh, a little research on Wikipedia, I think to your point, Matt, about you know not uh, not seeing the mummy mummying. This movie is Dracula's origin story. Yes, grown origin story in which he's, you know, the um, the Vladium Paler, right? The Transylvanian prince or some such. Uh, and he fights the invading Ottomans. And at some point he does turn into a vampire. He drinks the blood and all that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, I gather what the what uh, the problem with this movie is that there's not enough Dracula Dracula in here. Um, and other stuff going on. So um, that happened, right? <laughs> they tried to launch the Dark Universe once, and it looks like uh, it. Uh, this might be another failure to launch here again. I don't think it's a failure. It's a huge global opening. Right. I mean, if their goal is to sell it overseas, I mean, it probably is a success, right? 
Yeah, well, and the, the goal has the goal has to be to sell it overseas. Like I think Pete, you're you hit the nail right on the head with like we're going to see reboots of these things because these properties exist, right? Like they they want to they have this IP and they want to like continue to exploit the IP. And there is a whole global market that's just exploding, um, it, metaphorically that that is growing rapidly. I mean, the, whose growth is explosive? The uh, um, and and they didn't have uh, they didn't have movie theaters when these things came out. I mean, this is the point that you made. And I think it's, I think it's exactly right. And sort of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, hits the nail on the head, right? Like from our point of view, it's like, ah, they're all out of ideas. Why can't Hollywood make anything original? But you know, if you are, uh, if you are from a place that suddenly has like a 24 plex, um, it is the original, and that's that's sort of a shame because there was something really, uh, you know, I don't know. Like there, there was. I, I was talking with uh, someone in their twenties uh, this week about the Mummy, sort of apropos of the podcast, and and it's come it's coming out. Um, and my friend, she said to me, uh, "The uh, oh Tom Cruise, that weird Scientology guy, right?" And oh, and I said so much more than that. Well, this is my thing, right? Um, now, keep in mind, she's she's more than ten years younger than us. She's in her twenties, and and uh, and she doesn't know Tom Cruise as anything but the, from like the couch jumping period on, you know. And so for me, it was like, well, have you seen Top Gun? No, Risky Business. No. And I, I like, you know, did three or four more and like that this is, you know, that, 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 the, the, hmm, the thing that you can't reboot is Tom Cruise. Right. And that, <laughs> <laughs> and that like, th- there is, there was, God, he was great. He was like the perfect movie star, you know, and w- he was the icon of male masculinity. In the eighties, like him and Arnold Schwarzenegger, I guess in a way, but mostly Tom Cruise. Well, yeah, actually, like the the let's call it the Schwarzenegger Cruise continuum, right? I suppose there's someone there's someone else who is maybe a little more even even more delicate um, than Tom than Tom Cruise, right? Like because Tom Cruise represents intensity, uh, Schwarzenegger represents brawn, and there's got to be a third a third. Uh, triangle that a third um point on the triangle that that uh, that reflects uh like intellectual achievement that refer that reflects uh, you know um cleverness or something like that uh so that we can complete our game of mary f kill uh with with the three uh 1980s 1980s movie stars and it it i mean the thing the thing is the the problem is not trying to reboot the mummy the problem is that you know Tom Cruise still wants to be sort of this this kind of uh this kind of action star. Um but but uh, he he doesn't necessarily. Uh Pete you you sent the around the trailer for American Made which is a film uh also a universal film but coming out uh starring Tom Cruise coming out this fall. Um w- w- t- tell us a little bit about what you saw and what <sighs> arrested what just arrested you so much that you you had to uh send this YouTube video to all your friends. I mean the first thing I thought was this is why he did the mummy. <laughs> like because Universal did this movie that seems to have such a delightful story but seems a little bit offbeat and uh, not the kind of movie that tends to get made these days very often. It reminded me a little bit of the night 
which famously was cost extracted by Shane Black for Iron Man 3, right? Being like, I have to, I want to make the nice guys. And they're like, okay, you made us a billion dollars. And go ahead, right? You can, you can um, lose a few million on Nice Guys, which I believe the, the studio did. Nice Guys, yeah. by the way, is a delightful movie. And if you haven't seen it, shame on you. You should watch it. <laughs> it's, it's very good. But it's, it looks like it's, and it's, it's what it is is also is it's aging Tom Cruise and aging Tom Cruise. I enjoy quite a bit as a performer. And it's not that aging Tom Cruise appears in all of the Tom Cruise movies these days, but he's in movies like Edge of Tomorrow and Mission Impossible uh, uh, Rogue Nation, I guess, um, or Ghost Protocol. No, Rogue Nation, where but, it's like Tom yeah, Cruise there were, has there were both. vulnerability. <laughs> but I feel like in the latter one, like where he like run, he's like running after the plane, but seems draggled and exhausted, right? Like, oh, I got to keep running after this plane. Oh, my goodness. Right. It's like I just have to keep doing my Tom Cruise thing and I can't stop. And there's a certain sort of vulnerability in older Tom Cruise that younger Tom Cruise didn't have at all. Right. Because younger Tom Cruise was like ace in the hole, you know, highway to the danger zone guy. Um, And so it looks like it's a it's a comedy. And also those of us who remember Tom Cruise from Tropic Thunder know that comedic Tom Cruise is criminally underrated. Right. He was the funniest part of that very funny movie. Uh, I mean, you guys saw Tropic Thunder, right? Oh, yeah. Love it. Well, yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's actually on Netflix one of the greatest right performances of his career. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. And so, yeah, go ahead. But the, the yeah, and and that's like, the thing is, because that Cruise, the defining feature of Tom Cruise is, is his intensity, right? Like, yeah. is just the kind of, it's not, there are, I don't know if there's a more energetic movie star, but there isn't a movie star that can take all that energy and like laser like focus it down to a single point, to a single red dot that just bores a hole through something. And that's what I mean, that's what Tom Cruise brings to bear on uh, on everything in in his acting. And it's if you can turn that to if you if you have a performer who is sort of secure enough to do that and be ridiculous right to sort of do that and be a be a failure and to kind of celebrate the failure um like that's 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 comedy gold that's classically it's clowning you know like it's uh yeah. the clown sort of is it celebrates failure in public right and that's like um uh it's one definition i've i've heard of clowning from an acting teacher uh, that i worked with and and like if if it can be that that's great but this also i mean like this sort of i feel like he's going for that like matthew mcconaughey sort of um historical prestige because it's it's going to be released in the fall it has a sort of historical thing there's like a government thing so it's like this this is on a continuum it seems more like a comedy a little more frivolous than than uh than these others but it's on a continuum with like argo and dallas buyers club because it's a sort of uh uh recent past um historical uh biopic with a uh male protagonist you know who is kind of a, is a figure who seems like he's going to be kind of representative of his time right and that in the in the course of uh in the course of doing that he it seems like he this is more than uh, this might be like an awards play, or this is like kind of an opportunity. Uh, there's kind of an opportunity. It's there's an artistic opportunity of some kind, or a recognition opportunity, uh, not presented by um, 
you know, Mission Impossible Rogue Protocol or Ghost Nation. Actually, <laughs> Mission Impossible Ghost Nation should be in the Dark Universe, right? That's a, it's a whole nation. Yeah. Of, it's a whole nation of ghosts, <laughs> <laughs> and it's about there. Is Ghost going to be in the in the Dark Universe? Are they going to remake Ghost with, with like CGI Patrick Swayze? <laughs> that would be great. Oh, but but why why you're saying why you're saying and like and like a, and a, like a re, and a remix of Unchained Melody with a guest verse from like Quavo from Migos or something. <laughs> when when you were talking about the intensity of Tom Cruise and the kind of movie that this looks like it might be. Yes, Pete. When I was talking about the <laughs> intensity of Tom and, Cruise, yes. And I was trying yes. to think of performers. I was trying to think of performers who are similar to Tom Cruise. And actually, this is kind of strange. What came to mind? Two Google image search opens in uh, Google Google search windows open in front of me right now. Look at a Google image search of Bruce Lee next to a Google image search of Tom Cruise. I feel like there's a fair amount of superficial similarity in that they, I guess, what give face sort of way that they look. Uh, and I mean that as an active verb, the way that you that Bruce Lee is never just Bruce Lee is never just, uh, you know, seeing things. He always is looking right. And, and there's an there's an Lee, there's a guardedness to Bruce. Uh, and I'm talking about and it's funny because it's hard sometimes to separate Bruce Lee, the actor, Bruce Lee, the martial artist, especially because his career as an actor is so short. But I was thinking that the kind of movies that we're seeing from Tom Cruise now might be the kind of movies we had, would have. Bruce Lee had he lived right, and instead what we got was Jackie Chan, who is the you know the the much more clownish, much more kind of tension released version of Bruce Lee. I mean, literally one of Bruce Lee's stunt team, right? So somebody who comes from that same oeuvre. But it's interesting to think of of Tom Cruise and Bruce Lee. Tom Cruise not being a martial artist, of course, but being also of a of a mystical <laughs> of a sort of mystical practice. <laughs> Uh, and incorporating his mystical practice into his acting, uh, it would be interesting. It's interesting to think about that. And I want to like watch. Uh, like, I mean, Tom Cruise never did like a blood sport kind of movie. He's not Jean Claude Van Damme, but um, watch one of his watch one of his movies next to like Game of Death and see if there's a any vibe that they have that's similar to each other. Because I, I think like Uma Thurman, for example, I think totally did not capture the Bruce Lee vibe of Game of Death. When she wore the yellow jumpsuit, but that was part of what made it her entirely her own, right? Um, not a lot of people capture Bruce Lee captures. Yeah, it's I mean, anyway. It's just, it's just an interesting comparison. There's sort of a different relationship to the to the body and to the environment. And if you de- yeah, if you look at those pictures of of Bruce Lee, it's it's funny though. Like a lot of the a lot of the stills you see of Bruce Lee from the films are him, uh, you know, doing uh, some sort of Jeet Kune Do like martial arts stance or something like that. So he's in the middle of fighting or in the middle of practice of you know of some kind. He's not just like eating a corn dog or something like that. Though I I actually would pay to watch that short uh, called Bruce Lee eats a eats a corn dog, and like the the disposition and channeling of energy, um, I mean as a non expert I can definitively say uh, the disposition and channeling of energy is one of the you know one of the tools of of martial arts and so it's it's uh, uh, sort of no it's no surprise I mean Tom Tom Cruise seems to have a different relationship to the body and sort of towards the physical environment yeah. right like uh, the the place that that 
that he finds himself in. And it's actually interesting to compare him, uh, like he's actually doing that. Like there was all this press around that stunt on the plane when the plane is taking off and he's hanging off the door that showed him actually doing it right. That showed him Mm -hmm. like really running, really jumping, really actually getting dragged by the plane a little bit. And this is, this is kind of akin to the, um, to the Jackie Chan credit sequences, you know, that, that show the, uh, either the outtakes or the kind of unsuccessful attempts, or I mean, either the, like the spectacular disasters, uh, that sometimes leave him in a cast and things like this. And they have to, then you understand why they never show him from the waist down, uh, for the rest of the movie. Um, the, or, uh, or just like attempt after attempt, after attempt, after attempt, uh, to slide through. I remember one that's like sliding through a, tiny bank teller a tiny opening in a bank teller window and he just he just did it and did it and did it and did it and did it over and over until uh until he got it and that that like um uh the episode of every every from a painting on on jackie chan is uh uh, is interesting, but but the the point I want to make though is that Tom Cruise has gone from the Maverick and Top Gun relationship in airplanes, where he is the he has his hand you know gripped firmly around the the shaft and the head of the stick in the airplane, you know, to you know a relationship of kind of mastery and of uh, you know fire you know it, uh, shooting pointy things out um, <laughs> uh, from you know it's a, from the kind of the phallus in Wonderland relationship to the the rogue protocol uh relationship where he's being dragged behind uh he's being dragged behind an airplane as it takes off he's gone from an, a relationship of mastery to the kind of the more jackie chan like relationship um to his to his environment and the successful moments for me are the ones that that sort of embrace that rather than you know trying to pretend he's still 22 so it'll be interesting to see uh, in, in the next couple of years or so when the Top Gun sequel comes out, right? Will he still be <sighs> attempting mastery or will he be being dragged along by the plane? It's going to be really interesting. I have no idea what they're going to do with this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I am curious. I'm honestly a little bit worried about what's gonna, what this is going to be like. Is it like are they all just going to going to fight against predator drones or something like that? Or I mean, I, I think the the rumor, at least that I, I heard last year, was that the uh, you know the the armed forces are moving towards unmanned drones and they're going to need you know the real deal in the cockpit to fight whatever the bad guys are in this in this uh dystopic new future we have is it well i you know yeah i don't i don't want to ask a bunch of questions about a a movie that we don't we have not really seen or know anything about um but let's dive into top gun maverick uh let's just really go deep on the (laughs) i yeah yeah i I don't know. It's uh I guess there is, I mean there is sort of a need. It's it's almost like um it's almost like a metaphor for the changing of the guard uh like Tom Cruise right uh, Tom Cruise is to the whoever the young good looking protagonist of Top Gun Maverick is as uh David Hasselhoff is to The Rock in Baywatch right like th- there's a sense in which the kind of the old the old masculinity has to kind of bless right the new masculinity and the old um form of of popularity has to give way to the new form of popularity the old form of iceman will have to give blessing to the new form of iceman because val kilmer's in this as well is he really 
Uh, yeah. I yeah. wonder. I wonder if he's going to appear without his shirt playing volleyball. I do hope you think so. it'll? Do you think it'll be like The Force Awakens, where the story is really focused on the younger people and the older people, and then? of us can pretend that the movie is about the older people when it really isn't just so that we feel better about not being so old yeah i mean i think i think it has to be right like the the i don't know there are some good action movies about aging you know but they're not um it's pretty deeply metaphorically buried you know uh the the way that i don't know that the a lot of action stars may as well be may as well be superheroes, right? Like uh, the Expendables series comes to mind uh, in its earlier. Um, yeah, like Expendables one before it became yeah. campy. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Logan I mean, is extent- a great action movie about aging. There you go. Yeah, yeah. There. So, so, and it's hard. To, to what extent yeah. has Tom Cruise directly addressed aging in his movies? I mean, the his whole thing, right, is to be kind of ageless in, in that regard. Now, to be clear, he's not some sort of grandpa, right? And he's in his mid-50s along with uh, Brad Pitt and Johnny Depp, um, who still, uh, you know, uh, all those three have all managed to continue to play um, you know, sexually attractive leading leading men uh, in their movies. Uh, and, and yet, there's this... Yeah, man, we, uh, we, know, really, that, we really got the long end of the stick on that double standard. Mm. Up top. Uh, indeed, yeah. Uh, and yet there's a sense that this cannot possibly continue, right? Eventually he's going to show up gray-haired like Harrison Ford in The Force Awakens and say, like, this is real, all of it, and now it's your story, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. I belong in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, there's, so there's no way it can't, I mean, there's no way it can't uh, focus on, uh, it can't not not focus on the uh on the young characters the the you know the top guns i mean what if you are formerly the top gun but you're you're no longer the top gun you know like what what kind of gun are you then uh just a broken bent piece of scrap metal discarded uh in the the scrapyard of of history you could be you could be a powerful gun that's the thing that you can do right your okay. ego can be writing checks. Your, your ego can be writing checks that Social Security could cash. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> but that's not the only thing that happened this week. There was a clash of uh, world historical forces, the likes of which I'm not sure uh, we have seen up to this point, and I'm not sure we will ever see again. I'm referring, of course, to the the British election, uh, in which. Uh, <laughs> In which the Tories, the Tories lost seats, uh, uh, but Theresa May is still trying to form a minority government. And uh, no, but uh, do, you, do you think do you think Theresa bad blood of Parliament? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn put his whole back catalog up on Spotify during the uh, <laughs> look, man, Band-Aids Brexit holes. All right. <laughs> the uh yeah so uh, uh katie perry re- released her her most recent um record her new record this week and now like uh now records come out on fridays because apparently i'm old and irrelevant and uh they come out the same days that movie they don't come out on tuesdays anymore they come out for movies that is because uh it's because of ratings actually is the 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 reason for it right like it lines up better or it produces uh better 
um, higher numbers in the you know the various kinds of charts that that rank these things and uh since we're all horse race we're all populous now right like there's no ain't no data like big data right and like nothing is nothing is true nothing is good nothing makes any difference or matters Matt, Matt, are you are you okay Matt? <laughs> <laughs> i just Did the I dark li- universe get too dark for you or, or do you need a thetans cleansed <laughs> i listened to uh i i actually listened to uh katie perry's album today and it is kind Ooh. of like it is kind of like katie perry's dark universe because it's it's a lot about like intractable emotional problems or things that you know not not a uh you know not a a uncomplicated uh, celebration of cupcake bras like some of uh like some of her her old work yeah. it's a more she's talking she's talking a lot about how she's very woke right i get well she sure woke. did she did she well she got a. am you know i'm is the jury out on how much it happened but what here's here's what happened uh on the day that her album came out, her uh, former frenemy and current uh, out-and-out rival, uh, Taylor Swift, released her whole back catalog on Spotify, which was something that, like, uh, she was taken off of Spotify and briefly off of Apple Music. There was an issue about royalties from non-paying non-subscribers. Um, you know, it, it was this contentious thing and it was like, oh, artist rights and things like this. But actually, it's like, you know, Taylor Taylor Swift can create a more value. She's unique, actually, among pop stars, current pop stars, and that she can create more value through scarcity than she can through availability. Um, making her kind of sui generis in the pop music landscape. She's the exception that proves the rule. Sure, um, but uh, but she flooded Spotify with her her back catalog, you know, and this was sort of interpreted as a dig against uh, a dig against um, uh, Katy Perry, uh, with whom she has bad blood, uh, like the like the song says. So uh, Mark has been following every twist and turn of of this story. Like, uh, what do, what do you think of it, Mark? Well, uh, just a little bit of additional context uh, before we kind of fully launch into this, right? The origins of the feud, best as I can tell, go back to when uh, Katy Perry poached backup dancers from Taylor Swift. Uh, Taylor Swift took much umbrage to this, and uh, she addressed this in the song Bad Blood. Um, I believe uh, Katy Perry is hit back. There's a new song uh, on the new album, I think, called Swish Swish, which is about <clears throat> which is about Taylor Swift. Um, and in between, they've exchanged uh, sniped words at each other. The most recent development of which, you know, I've been following this very closely, as Matt has said before, uh, is that Katy Perry has said that she's willing to bury the hatchet. Uh, she does not want this feud to continue. So, um, but, you know, of course, in, in our minds, you know, uh, because we demand grand narratives for everything, it's so much more entertaining to believe that they are just at bitter, bitter war with each other. Um, you know, especially with this, uh, the timing of the album drops. Um, the, the back catalog drop on Spotify on Friday, uh, going up against Katy Perry's thing there. I mean, it's just like, you know, the internet kind of lit up with, uh, with glee, <laughs> for lack of a better word, glee, that this was happening and that their feud continued to play out in this uh, way for all of our entertainment, right? And, you know, as if uh, Katy Perry has, in, in the gladiatorial ring, after slaying her beasts uh, in, in much violence, looks up upon us all and asks, are you not entertained? To which I would respond, yes. 
Yes, we are. So that's some context there. I, I, there are a lot of different ways we can take this conversation. You know, the one of which is how I guess you could say that society is always pitting women against each other. Uh, another, you know, sort of along the lines of, um, you know, how uh, we like to find these narratives and things and uh, you know, like our, our bloodlust produces these conflicts and things like that. Uh, but I'll, I'll leave it to you guys to see where you want to take. Can, can I ask you a question, Mark? Because this sure. is what interests me. On what basis is Katy Perry the one who is in a position to call the feud off? That was the thing that I didn't understand, right? I don't because, fully understand it either. I mean, I'll, yeah. I will I will admit that, you know, I'm not necessarily the world's foremost expert in the Taylor Swift, uh, Katy Perry feud as I am with the Terminator franchise. So it's not entirely clear to me. But, but, so, but so, to flesh this out a little bit. So Katy Perry did something regarding a tour logistics for a tour that at at best inconvenienced taylor swift and at worst caused her a fair amount of anxiety and pain and money right like yeah. involving personnel right that's what we best think. as i can tell that initiated the future. okay yeah. and we and if you are an expert in this and you want to weigh in please visit us and talk in the comments right because we want to learn about this but but i think the the big salvo was bad blood right it was i mean the the katie perry did katie perry ever even fire back I'm not aware. I don't know. It's it's the kind of thing where if she did, it was so much less of an act of rivalry and of beef than Bad Blood was that it fails to register, right? And it's sort of like if you're the person getting punched in the face, you don't get to be the one being like, all right, all right, all right, you know, like – this has been all well and fun and games, but let's let's be friends now, right? Like like the person doing the punching has to be the one to say that, right? It's like Taylor Swift like initiated massive retaliation, like the um, uh, like the juggernaut that she is, right? Again, and I'm not the huge form, but but to compare, it, Kate has another beef, even a beef, but a rivalry, which I felt felt more theatrical, which was that Katy Perry heard the state of mind, right? Which is uh, um, Jay Z and Alicia Keys, and 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 heard people. Say, in clubs in California and was saying, well, that's not, that's not like we need to represent our, and so she found new and did, uh, girls as a specific direct answer to, to empire state of mind, which is hilarious, right? Because the two songs are on such completely different levels of kind of tone and subject matter and, and fail to engage with each other in any sort of direct way. And yet I think the intention is there, uh, behind it. Right. Um, and so that to me felt like a symmetrical rivalry. But this, I just I just don't see how Katy Perry can be the one to call it off. I don't see how Katy Perry can be the one to be the bigger person. If if Taylor Swift is the one who just tried to co-op your entire album launch, like what does Kit Taylor Swift have to say about it? I, guess, I mean, she hasn't addressed the but go ahead, man. Don't uh, yeah, I don't know. Don't you feel like that was the? I don't know. Don't you feel like that was the aggressive? the aggressive move, right? Like it's, it's interesting. Like there is a, there is kind of a political dimension to like, I forgive you. Um, speaking of which Pete, I forgive you for all those, all those things that you've done. I I just, I know I'm going to be the bigger person, you know, and, uh, it's time to put this silly feud to rest, you know? Uh, so, so uh, Pete, I forgive you. It's, it's all right. I forgive you. 
right. Thank you very much. See, you see, and that's all, that's the only thing you can say. And you know what I mean? Even if I just like stole your lunch money, I could still steal your lunch money, punch you in the nose and say, it's okay. I forgive you for this rivalry that we've had, this lunch money rivalry. Um, And it's a, uh, you know, especially in kind of a public feud where there are sort of reputational effects to a lot of the, uh, to a lot of the moves that you could make. It is a, a pretty good power move to, to, uh, to declare the feud over and forgive the other person. So yeah. the other things are going on here too, right? In terms of, um, I, I think at least I'm intuiting this are, uh, they're trying to stake out, uh, different levels and claims of, uh, artistic worth, artistic merit. Um, I think because both of them have massive insecurity about being, uh, just kind of non, uh, uh, pop stars without a lot of substance. Um, I think that's part of it. Um, I'm having a little bit of trouble thinking of a comparable situation going on. And and again, it might be because of the uniqueness of the stature of the two of them and the fact that they're female pop stars. I feel like uh, male pop stars don't get subject to the same sort of scrutiny um, and are pitted against each other in in quite the same way. Um, Uh, Come on. I'm uh, sorry. Did you're saying that they're being pitted against each other? Did you hear Taylor Swift's song? I'm not yeah, I'm not I'm not excusing her for this as well, but there's excusing uh, again, her. There's... I, I forgive her. I forgive Taylor Swift. I mean <laughs> Look, we all know that we want to be bigger people about this, but what society is forcing Taylor Swift to record in his tracks. Society Swift and an apology. All yeah, right. Okay. So it's great. I'm I'm checking my privilege. Like I, you know, I've never been forced to record a diss track, and that's that's just something that you know that's that not everyone is so lucky. <laughs> Mark, Mark, are we being, are we being no, ridiculous? No, 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 no. And I'm clearly not going to make that the hill I'm going to die on here. And in fact, like to the point of uh, Taylor Swift being, uh, you know, quite the aggressor in these sorts of things. I mean, to go back to her. Uh, her stakes on 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 her business moves, right, with the streaming catalogs and things like that. She has shown herself to be, uh, I don't know what quite the right word is. It, ruthless might be a little bit uh, um, a little bit harsh, but um, a power not, player, uh, a power player. Yeah, I think that's what, not afraid to to flex her muscles to use the considerable amount of levers that she knows that she has um, to her advantage. So all to her credit, I think, to be honest. You know, um, you know, she maybe it was putting bad blood out there. Maybe not uh, the the biggest person thing to do. Uh, you know, the, the big person thing to do, probably not. Um, has it worked out to her advantage? Probably. So, you know, hats off to her, right? You know, there's there again, like I, it it speaks to this idea that uh, Taylor Swift might feel this insecurity about not being taken seriously, and so she. Make sure that the world knows that she will be taken seriously. This is, I mean, the the interesting thing here, right? Like some of the class dynamics, right? Like if the if the thing is actually about backup dancers, then you have two sort of managers, or you have two like global celebrities who are fighting over the disposition of uh, of like itinerant manual laborers. 
you know, which is what backup dancers are. Uh, and the, the people with a whole lot less um, economic security, you know, uh, people without... Uh, you know who are reliant for their livelihoods on the Taylor Swifts and the and the Katy Perrys of of the world. It you know it uh, reminds me of like Russian nineteenth century sort of Russian landowners sitting around and and you know gambling villages of a thousand souls or something like that back and forth to uh, to one another and and that like. Um, uh, you know the the uh, I don't know there there is a there's an aspect in which like the the rivalry or else the um, uh, the rivalry or else the uh, uh, I don't know the breaches of of etiquette and protocol by Taylor Swift or Katy Perry are sort of important from the point of view of of self-actualization and and from the point of view of honor and from the point of view of all these things but like uh you know at a, at a a certain at a certain level they're talking you know they're talking about uh the the they're talking about the the labor of their their employees and who is sort of who is sort of entitled to it now to be fair to to Mark's point, Pete, I think like I think we have a sort of cultural category for like catfight rivalries between young women, right? Like who are uh, um, who sort of go at each other that are that that is not you know you, you don't look at I, I don't know I'm trying to think of two two men sort of trying to to do the same thing. Um, well, a good comparison would be Jay Z and Nas, or like the game and anyone, or <laughs> or if you don't talk about society, you can get into the Soldier Boy Ice T feud, which was a great one. No, let's <laughs> not. Let's, oh God, let's not. It made me made me so <laughs> so. You know. How can you how can you rap F the police when you go on 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 SVU and play the police on screen? <laughs> tell me tell me that. Um, <laughs> or like Lil B and Kevin Durant, although I think he forgo- forgave him. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I I just I think maybe it's that I think of the rivalry between Katy Perry. Lil, Lil B and- was the bigger B after all. <laughs> He was something. I think of that rivalry as similar to a rap, a rap beef, wherein there are meaningful issues of reputation that are being adjudicated and that that everybody benefits from this thing happening in public for the most part. Uh, I mean, there are complex questions as to why you would do it and how, but it's not just that that it's sort of a theater that everyone else watches and demeans the people involved. Like there is a there are things to be won in these sorts of battles and maybe maybe there are and I, not maybe there are definitely lots of people who see the feud between Katy Perry and Taylor Swift and think like, oh, women just can't get along. Right. And don't see it as on par with, you know, the game, you know, shooting somebody. Right. I mean, or getting not the game didn't ever shoot anybody. But like I'm trying to remember, like all the people in G unit who got involved in like minor dust ups at various sort of key points in their promotional cycle, right? Like where this bodyguard shot that bodyguard or like, why is little wearing a gun at all? I mean, he's not in G unit, but it's like why he gets arrested for session. Like, yeah. And like that kind of question, right? Like, um, and then these things can get acted out in the art as well as in physical violence. I guess what I'm saying is that like pop beef is violence by other means, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that like Taylor Swift can't is that Swift 
See, for backup dancers, like, shh, Katy Perry's backup. For serve, that would be great if they just had dance-off flick where, where Taylor Swift's backup dancers and Katy Perry's backup dancers would just face off uh, and just do Jackson's bad. <laughs> in a uh, yeah that's a remake i think we could all get behind uh all right let's leave it there for uh tonight thanks very much to pete and mark for podcasting with me and thank you for listening we were struggling against some technical issues uh tonight it doesn't happen to us often anymore but it happens from time to time thanks for bearing with us we always work to uh to do the best we can with that stuff and we'll uh we'll uh look in look look into it if anyone has a private dedicated internet that they can uh donate to overthinking it we would be very very happy to have one or you could just become a member at overthinking slash join we'll be back next week with more overthinking it podcast till then visit us on the web at overthinking it where we subject do i say overthinking it a lot in that in the outro overthinking it do i when i'm uh doing the overthinking it podcast overthinking it does does the word overthinking it come up uh a whole hell of a lot overthinking it uh, i think it does overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve.